This uh, Christmas, for me, will be my 48th Christmas. I don't know how many you've had so far, but this Christmas coming up will be the 48th time that I celebrate Christmas. And the question that I've been thinking about as I've been preparing for this Christmas is this question, how many Christmases have I missed? Out of the 47 I celebrated, this will be my 48th. How many Christmases have I actually missed? Because when I was younger, uh, like a little kid, I really couldn't think much beyond the gifts. Like I just got lost in all the gifts that I would hope to get that Christmas. And then when I got just a little bit older, you know, when I Christmas came up, I couldn't think much beyond the different Christmas parties that I was going to get to go to and then thinking about all the different Christmas presents I was going to actually have to start giving. And then when I got a little bit older uh, with kids, Christmas, I couldn't think much beyond, well, gosh, how can we make this Christmas the best Christmas ever for our kids? When you factor in all of the busyness that comes over the next 25 days and you factor in maybe the dynamics of navigating just family relationships in Christmas time, the conclusion or realization that I've had recently is I've just missed a lot of Christmases. Now, I don't know how many Christmases you've had, but let me ask you this question. How many Christmases have you missed? As you look back over the Christmas seasons, how many Christmases have you missed? Now, you might be wondering, what does it mean to miss Christmas? And the best answer that I could give you to missing Christmas would be this, distracted by many things, missing the one thing. Distracted by many things, but missing the one thing. Over the next 25 days, we're all going to go through a lot of different types of distractions. Uh, some of us are just going to be distracted literally by the Christmas parties and the preparations that go with that. Some of us might be distracted by the amount of gifts that we're going to have to give out this year. Some of us might be distracted by the ridiculous amount of good food that comes out of nowhere in the month of December. I mean, there's reasons we don't drink eggnog all but once a month, and I don't even know what we would look like if we had eggnog available all year, but tons of food. Some of us might be distracted by just the de decorations and the expectations that we put our houses and apartments have to look a certain way or feel a certain way. Some of us might be distracted by the ever-dwindling bank account in the month of December. Some of us might be distracted by just the family dynamics, and maybe there's dysfunctionality in your family, and that really comes to the surface in a unique way in the month of December. Now, again, none of these necessarily are bad things, but they are all things that have the potential to distract us from the actual one thing. So if you haven't been wondering yet, let me just ask the question, what is the one thing? If someone were to ask you, hey, what's the one thing at Christmas time that we cannot miss? How would you answer that question? I'm guessing some would simply say, well, you can't miss the Christmas story. You can't miss baby Jesus in a manger. You can't miss Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. And you can't miss the wise men and the gifts that they bring. Or you can't miss the angels and the songs that the angels broke out and begun to sing. Again, those are great answers, but which of those is the one thing? Which of those details in the Christmas story is the one thing? Now, some might just simply say, well, Michael, that's a bit ridiculous. There can't just be one thing because there's so much happening 
so much amazing things happening actually in the Christmas story that's pretty difficult to narrow it down to just one thing that we cannot miss. And I would concede, yeah, there's amazing things happening in the Christmas story, in the Christmas narrative. But I would say there is one thing. There is actually one verse, and I would go as far as say is one of the most amazing verses in all of God's story that helps us see with great clarity what the one thing is that we cannot miss. Now, before I'm going to share that one verse that sheds all sorts of light on what the one thing is that we cannot miss, I actually want to tell you a story. And I want you to, as best you possibly can, get into story-telling mind, story-hearing mind, because uh, I want to introduce you to a character named Sebastian. So envision in your mind Sebastian, whatever he might look like, but imagine that Sebastian, for the very first time, picks up God's story, picks up God's Bible. For the very first time, he has no idea about God's story, he has no idea about the details of God's story, and he certainly has no idea of how God's story will end. He's literally picking up this Bible for the very, very first time. So Sebastian opens the very opening page of God's story of the Bible, well, he sees in the beginning there is God, and he sees in the beginning that God created everything. God created the heavens, God created the earth, and everything else. And he sees right away on page one that God, what he created, it was perfect, it was good, it was absolutely beautiful. He sees that God not only created the heavens and the earth, Sebastian learns quickly though, God also created people. He created humanity, specifically created Adam and Eve. But there is a unique thing that Sebastian learns. Sebastian learns that humanity is very different than animals. And what sets humanity apart from anything, other, anything else in God's creation is that God created humanity, meaning men and women, in God's image. And what that means is that you and I have the opportunity to reflect back to one another and people around us a little bit of what God is like. And so Sebastian's learning that people have the opportunity to be like God and reflect love, reflect generosity, reflect compassion, reflect faithfulness, reflect um, uh, creativity, that we have the opportunity to reflect in part what God is like. But as Sebastian's reading this story for the very first time, he reads a very discouraging, sad detail right away in God's story, that the very people that God created to walk with God in eternity, they made a decision to walk away from God. They decided to walk away from God, and they made a choice to choose a perceived good that was apart from God. And when they decided to do that, everything went terribly wrong. Now, as Sebastian is reading on in God's story, he's going to learn a really important detail about God, namely that God did not walk away from people when people walked away from God. And he's going to read in Genesis chapter 3 a really strange sounding promise that God is going to make at the very beginning of his story. It says in Genesis chapter 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He being a personal pronoun, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
Now, again, Sebastian, he's never read God's story. He has no idea what this means. So this promise might sound incredibly strange. What does this even mean? That he will crush the head of God's enemy, but this God's enemy will strike the heel of this person that God eventually will introduce into his story. Again, he doesn't know all of what this means, but the one thing that he would know is that clearly one day there's going to be a descendant from this woman who is going to destroy God's enemy. Now, as chapter 3 of Genesis comes to a close, you can imagine that Sebastian has got to begin to wonder to himself, well, who's this descendant going to be? And when will this person show up? Like, will he come next week? Will he come a month from now? Certainly, he's got to come within a year. Like, would it be 100 years from now? He's asking himself these questions. When will this person from a descendant of Eve actually show up? Again, these are great questions that Sebastian might be thinking about. But all he knows at this point is that somebody is going to come from the descendant of being a descendant of Eve and do battle and win against God's enemy. Now, thankfully, as Sebastian reads a little bit further into God's story, because now the world is beginning to populate over and over and over again, Sebastian gets a really interesting clue into where this Savior, this Redeemer, this Messiah is going to come from. Out of uh, the great mass of humanity, God in His story says, hey, I'm choosing one family, choosing one individual where I'm going to introduce further my plan of redemption. And so, as Sebastian is reading in God's story in Genesis chapter 12, he's introduced to this family. He's introduced to this individual, and his name is Abram. It says in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous." And you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you. Again, Sebastian might be thinking to himself, Abraham's the guy. This has got to be the guy that God promised back in Genesis chapter 3. And as he reads in a little bit further into God's story, he's going to see Abraham is quite certainly a man of great faith. But then he starts to get to know Abram a little bit and sees that Abram lies. Abram often uh, is acts, makes decisions out of great unbelief. So it becomes clear to Sebastian that Abraham can't be the promised one, but it becomes clear that God's plan of redemption is going to come through one of Abraham's descendants. Now, as Sebastian reads further into the story, he's going to see, gosh, Abraham has lots of descendants had lots of kids. And he's going to see, well, is it Isaac? And then Isaac has a son, and his son, his name's Jacob. And then as he reads further into Jacob's story, Jacob has 12 sons. And so Sebastian is now wondering, well, which of these sons will this promised Redeemer, Savior, Messiah, which of these sons will it come through? Again, thankfully, as Sebastian keeps reading on the story, he gets a really big clue as to which son the promised Messiah, Redeemer, Savior is going to come from. On his deathbed, the father, Jacob, who is the grandson of Abraham, says to his fourth son, Judah, 
He makes a promise, gives Judah in many ways a blessing or a prophetic word. It says in Genesis 49, Jacob saying this to his son Judah, the scepter will not depart from Judah. The scepter is a reference to the kingly line. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. Now, if you're Sebastian, you're reading God's story for the very, very first time. You don't know how this all ends, but you're pretty excited because you just got another really big clue as to where the promised one will come from. Abraham's seed through the line of Judah, a kingly ruler, will come, and guess what? All nations, meaning all people, are going to honor this one. Now it gets hard, because as Sebastian continues to read God's story, he's going to enter into a part of God's story that is a very long period of God's people continually rebelling against God. And he's going to see the devastating consequences that every time people rebel or every time people sin against God, the relationship with God is growing further and further apart, and the relationships that people have with each other are getting harder and harder. Hundreds and hundreds of years will have gone by watching people walk away from God and the strife that is caused in humanity because of that. But hundreds and hundreds of years go by, and our friend Sebastian is about to meet an individual named David. And he's about to meet an individual actually named King David in God's story. And at first glance, Sebastian's got some hope. Because King David seems to be the person that God has chosen to establish a, a kingdom here. But as Sebastian discovers about more and more about King David. He's going to see that King David clearly has a man uh, after God's own heart. He loves God deeply, but Sebastian also is going to learn, similar to Abraham, King David is just as flawed and sinful and rebellious as Abraham was. He's going to see that King David was not only an adulterer, but actually became a murderer who then tried to cover the entire thing up. So he sees King David. There's no way that King David could possibly be the promised Savior King. But as he pushes a little bit further into David's story, shortly before David dies, God gives David a promise. And this is yet another clue for our friend Sebastian of where this Redeemer Savior is going to come from. It says in 2 Samuel, this is speaking to David, your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. So Sebastian, he knows that the Savior King is definitely going to be coming from King David's line. Now, I'm guessing Sebastian is getting somewhat excited because things are beginning to fall into place. It's not going to be King David, but it's going to be one of King David's sons, someone coming from King David's line. But I'm guessing his excitement turns into somewhat despair and discouragement because as he gets to know King David's family, it's one of the most dysfunctional families in all of God's story. And there are many sons that King David had that ultimately walked away from God. And when they walked away from God, they led the people of God to walk away from God and begin worshiping all sorts of idols. 
So I'm guessing Sebastian might be wondering to himself in all of this, is God going to fulfill His promise? Did God somehow fail in fulfilling His promise? He's never read the story. He doesn't know how the story ends. But all he knows is nearly 1,400 years have now gone by since God made a mysterious promise that He'd send a serpent-crushing king who would make all things right again between God and His people, but yet 1,400 years have now gone by, and He doesn't meet who this individual actually is. Again, as Sebastian keeps reading further on in God's story, when things seemingly are at their lowest point, Sebastian comes across a prophet. And a prophet, if you're not familiar with a prophet, a prophet is something, someone who simply spoke the words of God to the people of God. And he's about to read an incredible statement from a prophet named Isaiah. And this will be a statement from Isaiah that will not only open his eyes that God, has not, that God will continue to fulfill his promise that he made in Genesis 3, but his mind is going to be blown as to what God would do in order to make sure that promise is actually fulfilled. So as he's reading in the prophet Isaiah, it says this, The Lord Himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, keep in mind, again, that our friend Sebastian does not know God's story. He's never read it before. So he's not familiar with how the story goes, and he's not familiar with how the story ends. So imagine hearing for the very first time, she will give birth to a son, and she's a virgin, and this son will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Imagine the questions that would be running through his heart and his head. Questions like a virgin birth, what is that, how is that even possible? And even a greater question, God with us? Will God really enter personally into His story? Will God actually come Himself to fulfill the promise that He made back in Genesis chapter 3? I'm guessing our friend Sebastian would be filled with wonder, wondering, God, are you really going to show up? Are you really going to do the unthinkable and actually enter into a world that has hated you, has rejected you, has abandoned you, and walked away completely from your path and your ways? Now, Sebastian, he's encouraged by what he's just read, but the problem for Sebastian is that the promise of God's presence does not even come close to matching the reality of what Sebastian is actually reading. Meaning, it would seem like the people of God are getting more and more rebellious, and God is getting further and further away, and His presence away from His people. Well, shortly after the promise of God's presence was made, things got so bad for God's people that they were actually sent by God into exile, into a country that was not their own, and the city of David, meaning Jerusalem, has been completely destroyed and devastated and now lies in absolute ruins. So things are looking awful. And not only are they exiled, but shortly after their exile, they enter into a season of 400 years, which is known as the silence of God. They did not hear a word from God for 400 years. There was no prophets on the scene 
to speak the words of God to the people of God. 400 years in God's story, and there is no word whatsoever from God. Now, let me take a quick break from Sebastian, and let me ask you a question. Have you ever experienced a season where the promises of God did not match up to your experiences of God? You know what God has said, but your experience or your current reality is very different. Meaning, you might be familiar with the promise from God that says, never will I leave you and never will I forget about you. Never will I forsake you. But it just seems and it feels like God couldn't be more distant. You have no idea where He is, can't hear His voice, you can't make sense of what He's doing in your life. So that promise, never will I leave or forsake you, just doesn't match up with your current reality and experience. Well, if you've ever experienced that, you probably can envision what Sebastian is now feeling like. He knows what God has promised, but it's been now almost 2,000 years. God, I know what you promised, but when is this actually going to happen? Well, after that 400 years of silence, the Old Testament comes to a close. And Sebastian is ready now to turn to page one in what's known as the New Testament. And Sebastian would not have to read much further into God's story to discover the identity of God's promised serpent-crushing, saving king. After navigating 929 chapters in the Old Testament, Sebastian is finally ready to turn the page into the New Testament where he will meet in the very first verse in the very first chapter, the fulfillment of the promise that God had made in Genesis chapter 3. Listen to what the very first verse in the very first chapter in the entire New Testament actually says. Matthew 1.1, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Now, I'm guessing upon reading this one verse for the very first time, Sebastian would be hit with one huge question. Messiah, awesome. From the line of David, perfect. Line of Abraham, perfect. But would this child actually be born of a virgin? Because he remembered the promise of the prophet of God in Isaiah chapter 7. Well, as he would read the next 17 verses, that question gets answered very quickly. Verse 18, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. It took 930 chapters, but Sebastian has finally met the one who would fulfill the promise from God that God would make all things right. So I think for our friend Sebastian, what would not be lost is how God chose to fulfill his promise. Clearly, uh, Sebastian, fictitious character that I've clearly made up. But as I've been thinking a lot about my friend Sebastian in my head, well, whether it was years ago, whether it was even maybe decades ago, uh, or maybe even just recently, at some point, all of us was Sebastian. Meaning there was a point in your story where you didn't know God's story. 
There was a point in your story where you didn't know how God's story not only started, but you had no idea how God's story would end. There was a point in time, whether it was recently and maybe even as recent as today or many days ago, where you were filled with wonder at the one thing that God has done. Meaning there is a point where you read Matthew for the very first time and you see that Jesus is actually the fulfillment of a promise that God had made back in Genesis chapter 3. That you remember seeing that Jesus is actually, as it says, from the line of King David, the line then of Judah, then the line of Abraham, and then ultimately Adam and Eve. There is a point in time where you remember, whether it was recently or decades ago, that Jesus is actually Emmanuel, God with us. That's to say that Jesus is God in flesh. As Sebastian would read on in the story, as we would read on in the story, further into God's story, you'd come across in the Gospels that one verse that I think is one of the most amazing verses in all of God's story. And it's the one verse that helps us to remember the one thing that I don't want us to miss this Christmas. It's John 1.14. So the Word became human and made His home among us, full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. The reference to the Word became flesh, the Word became human, is a reference to Jesus. That Jesus, being God, became flesh and He made His home among us. So, what is the one thing? What is the one thing that we can't miss, not only just at Christmas, but what is that one thing that we cannot afford to miss in our lives? And it would simply be this, the incarnation that God entered into His story. That's what I do not want you to miss this Christmas. That's what I don't want to miss this Christmas, is the wonder of the incarnation that God entered into his story entered into our story. Do not miss the wonder of what God has actually done at Christmas. Do not miss the wonder of the incarnation this Christmas. Do not miss the wonder that God entered into His story. Because if God does not enter into His story, well, then there would never be any hope for any one of us ever being reunited with God both now and for eternity, for one reason alone. Because sinners cannot reconcile sinners with the holy God. There's nothing that I can do to reconcile you back perfectly to God. There's nothing that you can do to reconcile me back perfectly in relationship with God. In the same way that Abraham could not be God's Messiah, or Judah, or King David could not, they were all sinful people. So sinners cannot reconcile sinners back to a holy God, but a perfect and personal God can reconcile sinful people back with Himself. And this is exactly what God has done in Jesus. This is the wonder of the incarnation, that God walked into His story in Jesus so that you and I could walk with God today, tomorrow, next week, and ultimately throughout eternity. The next 25 days, there will be so much happening in all of our lives, so many things to distract us from the one thing. And the one thing I just don't want to miss myself 
And the one thing I don't want anyone here to miss is the wonder that God entered into his story so that anyone who would look to Jesus would be part of God's story today, tomorrow, and throughout eternity. Do not miss the wonder of what God has done when God entered into his story. It was the fulfillment of a promise that God made back in Genesis chapter 3.